Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 to 15, and it's found in your bulletins. You can just follow along as it's being read aloud. Hear the word of the Lord. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are known to God, what we, we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I started this last week, but uh, last week we just kind of we're in a little bit reflection mode and we're kind of revisiting this idea this vision that we have of building bridges and as I was in this passage you know I was just I loved it so much and I was so struck by it that I thought maybe for the next couple weeks we just take a closer look at this one passage because it does kind of give us uh, perhaps more than anything else in in the Bible uh, the heart of what ministry is supposed to be as we as we look at the Apostle Paul uh, <clears throat> now, last week, we also said this. Uh, the gospel has implications, and maybe implications is a better word than application because implication conveys a sense that the gospel is supposed to do something to us. So if we're receiving it correctly, if we're receiving it properly, if we really believe it, uh, it's not just some inspirational message that makes us feel good for a couple moments, for a couple weeks, but it, it is a power, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, and the gospel, this message of the gospel that we treasure it is supposed to do something to us. It is supposed to form us. It is supposed to change our hearts and even change our behavior. And uh, I think that's, one, uh, that's something wonderful about the gospel that maybe we underestimate that it is this power. And so last week I laid out these three implications of what the gospel does according to uh, this entire passage. And we said the first thing is the gospel leads to this denial of the self that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. The second thing that the gospel does is it prioritizes the work of reconciliation. And finally, the gospel should give us open hearts. It should widen our hearts to others. And what I want to do today, I think what we're going to do the next couple weeks is just kind of take a a look at each of those implications in greater detail. And today we're going to look at this first one about the implication of the gospel and what it has to do with denying ourselves. If we believe in the gospel, then here's the implication that we are no longer a people who think about ourselves first. Uh, it's not about our desires, our fulfillment, our dreams, and all of these things, that the self, the individual, is not the most important thing. But if we believe in the gospel and what Christ did for us, what it's saying is this, that we need to deny ourselves and live for the one who died for us. Uh, <clears throat> as I mentioned before, you can kind of hear it. This has been kind of a pretty, this is a bad winter. Um, I think for many people, it's been pretty cold. Uh, for me personally, it's been a bad winter 
because uh, I think I got sick at least three different times <laughs> on three different occasions. Uh, you know, last week I got sick again, and uh, at this point my wife is a little bit like, you know, frustrated that my immune system has been so weak, and uh, I've been getting sick so often. And I think just like everybody else, you know, I, I hate being sick. I just hate it. Uh, I hate the body aches. I hate the fevers. I hate the, the stuffy nose, most of all. Uh, I've had this persistent cough that went away, but now it's started to come back. I, ha- I hate the coughing. And, uh, you know, I told my wife, you know, if this cough comes back, I am going to go crazy. Right? <laughs> I'm going to be so upset. I'm going to be so angry that this cough is coming back, and it, it seems to have come back. And uh, yes, yes, I'm going to stop whining now, right? Too much whining. <coughs> but, you know, uh, I was thinking about just sickness in general. If you think about sickness, it's kind of a good thing that you show symptoms when your body is sick and when your body is, when something's wrong with the health of your body, right? Because, you know, imagine this. Imagine a world where uh, there is an illness and you don't show any kind of symptoms. Now, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a scientist. I don't study diseases. Maybe there's something like that out there. Uh, but if you don't show symptoms and something inside of you is kind of killing you from the inside, uh, that's, that's probably the worst kind of disease, right? Because that means you can't do anything about it. That's because you, that means you don't even know that there's something wrong with you. Uh, that means you can't even take steps to, to make yourself better and make yourself healthier. And uh, the way I view, uh, one of the ways that sin works, and in particular, this idea of the self that is pervading our modern culture, that uh, believe in yourself, this gospel of self, just believe in yourself, be true to yourself, it's, it's basically all about you. I, I wonder if that's like one of those diseases that uh, it doesn't make us feel like we're, we're spiritually unhealthy because it's just so normalized, right? Everything is about self-promotion. Everything is about ourselves. Everything is about pursuing our own dreams. It's just so normal to us. Everybody does it. And I wonder if that's perhaps a sickness that is within us that we don't realize is killing us from the inside and we're not showing any symptoms that this is something that is wrong within our hearts. Uh, (coughs) I've said this over and over again. I was actually kind of saying, do I need to say this again? Because I say it so many times. But, uh, you know, in our culture, uh, there's just this emphasis on elevating the self, the individual. Uh, Everything is just kind of about your own dreams. You are the author of your own story. You are the hero of your own story. You are the captain of your own destiny. And therefore, what do you need to do to make your dreams come true? You need to make it happen. You need to work hard. Uh, and you know that's, that's a message that might sound inspirational to us, but I think in the end, it's a message that ultimately crushes us because you know what it does? It puts the pressure upon us to basically be like God. And we're not like God. We can't handle that. We can't create identity for ourselves. We can't create meaning and purpose from within ourselves. But that's ultimately the lie of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, right? The serpent says, you will be like God. And I think we've bought into this lie today. Now, I wonder if our world makes it easier to make life about us than in previous generations. Now, uh, just to be clear, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying we are more selfish or more narcissistic than previous generations or we have more of an issue with self-centeredness than previous generations, although some people may say that. Uh, But what I'm saying is this, that uh, the way that our world is set up now, I wonder if it's set up in such a way that it takes the self-centered desire and allows us to kind of run with it to uh, a, a greater extreme than past generations. You know, think about some of the technological advancements that have made life about us. Think about our smartphones. Uh, we can choose to call or we can choose to answer the phone 
whenever we want because we have caller ID. We know who's calling us. Uh, there was once a time where the phone rang and you just had to pick it up and you didn't know who was on the other end of the line. Uh, we can catch up with other people's lives. And, you know, because New York is so transient, people are moving all over. And uh, we can kind of follow up on what is going on with their lives without actually even talking to them, without being inconvenienced. We just go on social media based on our own schedule, based on our own convenience when we have the spare time. And we see what other people are doing. Uh, texting, right? Texting is like, you know, I'm going to respond to people when uh, I have the time, when it's convenient to me. You know, all these things in technology and you know, automobile too, all of these things I think make set us up to be a little bit more self-centered. And I heard the sociologists uh, also have this theory that, you know, in the past people had so many more kids, so five, six kids uh, in a family. These days people have maybe one or two, maybe even three kids. And this sociology had a, sociologist had a theory that maybe uh, our generation is becoming a little bit more narcissistic because we come from smaller nuclear families. Uh, if you think about it, if you come from a family of one or two, like I do, I only have one sister, uh, you know, your, your parents can kind of conform and adjust to you and meet your desires and serve you and all of these things. If you come from a family of five or six, if you want to eat, you got to do what your parents say, right? If you want to eat, you got to adjust to the system. And so uh, I, I don't know what the answer is, but it does seem like, at least in our generation and in, in our culture, we are set up to really be these self-centered people and make life all about me. And you see it in every realm. Uh, it's all about my convenience. It's all about my desire, my schedule, my security. What is, what is my career about? My career is about me. It's about my personal fulfillment more than serving the common good. What is, what is marriage supposed to be about? Well, marriage is about making me happy, my personal fulfillment, rather than serving my spouse. What is, uh, what is church about? Uh, church is about filling my spiritual needs and uh, having my uh, social needs met in community rather than to be part of a body to serve a greater purpose of God's mission. Everything in our lives, I think, we have kind of twisted it a little bit and we have made it all about me, right? And the thing is, I don't, I don't think we... Myself included. I don't think we recognize when we do that because we are part of this social matrix. We have been formed and shaped by these cultural values. And for the most part, maybe it doesn't seem like there is anything wrong with that. But I think that is a sickness within our hearts that uh, it needs to be diagnosed. And maybe even if we don't show symptoms, I think it's there. You see, that sickness is also there for uh, people who serve the church, for some church leaders, for pastors. I, I see it there too. You know, when I talk to people, you know, New York is kind of a sexy place for uh, church planters. It's like, oh, the allure of New York. I get to have people who work at Google and uh, all these uh, elite cultural institutions in my church. And so, you know, it generally attracts people who want to start and plant churches in New York City. Most people, uh, that's not the reality of their situation in terms of the churches they plant. Uh, most churches, church planters, th it's, it's a struggle the entire time. And uh, <clears throat> after about five years or ten years, they, they get burned out. And uh, at the end of that, you know, they, they always admit, they say, you know, when I came here, I came here with a lot of ego, and uh, I wanted to build a, a great church so that I can kind of make a great name for myself. And then they got humbled because they uh, experienced the difficulty of ministry in New York. And so even, even with something like church ministry, we can twist that and, and make that so much about me, Right? When we look in this passage, the main thing that Paul is saying here is what? His motivation, it's not about him. His ministry to the Corinthian church, not about him. He is not looking for personal fulfillment. 
He is not looking for this commendation from the Corinthian church. He's not looking for the Corinthian church to say, Oh, Apostle Paul, you're so good. Your, your sermons, your messages, your arguments are so wonderful and so great. No, for Paul, it comes down to this, the love of Christ. The love of Christ is what drives him and compels him to pour himself out for other people and not live for himself. And you see, in order to make his ministry about Christ, I think three important things that we see here. Paul, he lives by faith and not by sight. Second, Paul knows the fear of the Lord rather than living according to the fear of man. And finally, Paul he lives for the one who died for him rather than living for himself. So we're going to look at those three things here today. The first thing, Paul, <clears throat> he walks by faith and not by sight. Now this is something that is uh, explicitly said in verse 7, but the idea is all over the passage here. Because, you know, in the previous chapter when Paul, he talks about suffering, uh, which is one of the reasons the Corinthians, they doubted the authenticity of his apostolic ministry. He says this, we look not to the things that are seen, but to, to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient, but the things that are unseen, sorry, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, if you have a, a materialistic view of the world, and uh, by materialistic I mean this, that you have a view of the world where the most meaningful things in life, it just comes down to atoms and molecules, then a statement like that is going to uh, sound a little bit absurd and disconnected from anything that is real. Uh, even if you're someone who is trying to understand Christianity, I, I, I would imagine that maybe one of the biggest struggles that you would have is the fact that you can't see God, right? You can't physically see God with your own eyes because God is spirit. And I do understand how that can be a struggle. But, you know, think about this. It seems to me that the most important things in life, the things that make us actually most human, are immaterial in nature, right? Think about love. What is love? Love is not material. Love is immaterial, but it's hard to see meaning in life without love. Think about the idea of hope. Hope is immaterial, but it's hard to really see the point of going on without hope. And of course, faith, hope, and love are three things that Paul oftentimes groups together. All these three things are immaterial in nature, and yet, I think three of the things that make us the most human, three of the most important things. You know, when Paul says he walks by faith and not by sight, I think it's basically uh, another way of him saying this, that he doesn't live based on what he sees with his physical eyes, but he lives based on what he essentially sees with his spiritual eyes, things that are unseen. He lives according to spiritual realities, and that is part of what enables him to live for things that are beyond himself. Because if you don't see spiritual realities, then the truth of the matter is you're going to miss out a lot miss out on a lot of what God is doing and of who God is. That's why in Ephesians 1, when Paul prays for the Ephesian church, what does he pray? That the eyes of their heart would be opened or enlightened. He knows that ultimately what they need to do is they need to see spiritual realities if they want to see true beauty, the true glory, the true riches that are found in Christ. In Colossians 3, what does Paul say when he talks about our life? He says our life in Christ is hidden. And I think what he's saying there is you don't see it with your physical eyes. You can't judge it based on outward appearances, but it's something that we need to see with our spiritual eyes. And therefore, if you are someone who only judges things based on outward appearances, there is a good possibility that you ultimately miss out on the fullness of what God is doing in Christ in the world and in our lives. You see, one of the essential truths about Christianity is that you cannot ultimately judge a person based on outward appearances. Uh, maybe you can see fruit in a person's life because they are organically connected to the person of Christ. 
But at the end of the day, you can't really judge the faith of a person based on what somebody looks like, based on how somebody dresses, based on maybe the, the gifts that they possess or the talents they possess. But unfortunately, the easiest thing for us to do is to do exactly that, right? We base things on outward appearances. We base things on what people are doing, what we can see. And perhaps we don't look through the eyes of faith. And if we're not doing that again, we risk the danger of missing out on the true beauty that God is displaying to us in Christ through these spiritual realities. You know, this, this Corinthian church, they judge things by outward appearances. See, what did they see in somebody like Paul? They saw a man who lacked good oratory skills. They saw a man who, you know, worked as a tent maker. He made tents with his hands. They saw a man who wasn't married. They saw a man who experienced a lot of suffering. And as they saw this and judged Paul based on outward experiences, what was their conclusion? He must not be a true apostle from God because surely if he was a true apostle, he wouldn't have to work with his hands. He could make money based on uh, his speeches. Uh, He wouldn't be a man who suffered as much as he suffered. And therefore, they question the legitimacy of his ministry. And by doing that, I think they miss out on a lot of the beautiful things that God was doing through him. Now look, I think we do that all the time, right? Because it is the easier thing to do. Uh, I think it's so easy to look at a ministry, to look at a church, and what do we look at? Outward appearances. We say, how many people are there? Uh, What is the budget like? Maybe in in a cyber world, how many clicks uh, does a website or something on social media get? Or we say, you know, how gifted are the people in this particular ministry and what are they doing? And, you know, I understand why we do that. I understand why those are the metrics that a lot of people use in terms of measuring whether we're being faithful and succeeding in our mission. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But, you know, that kind of assessment, though helpful, I think would be completely foreign to somebody like Paul. You know, what's interesting about Paul, he never talks about his strengths. Never talks about his strengths. Even the Corinthians, who probably would have wanted to hear about his strengths, what does he talk about? He talks about his weaknesses. He talks about his suffering. He talks about his afflictions. He talks about how he was persecuted. He talks about how he has a thorn in the flesh. He talks about how he didn't come to them with wise and persuasive words or with good rhetorical skills. And if they can't look beyond external appearances, and if they don't see what God is doing through Paul's ministry, at the end of the day, they're fools. They're fools. Uh, I don't personally attend many Christian conferences, but there's a lot of them out there. And whenever a speaker is introduced in a conference, uh, you know, there's a short resume that's given, and oftentimes this resume is this, you know, so-and-so leads this growing church of 5,000 people. And uh, when I, um, you know, I'm not saying that's not a, a faithful ministry. But, you know, sometimes I wonder, would Paul have been invited to one of these conferences <laughs> uh, based on his, his resume? Uh, would, would he have been invited, would Jesus have been invited to speak at one of these conferences? You know, I kind of doubt it, right? I, I think because it's so easy to judge things based on external appearances, to self-promote, to market uh, rather than see with spiritual eyes. You see, what's important about the Apostle Paul is he doesn't judge things by external appearances. You see what's wrong with the Corinthian church? They're judging things by external appearances. But Paul says you need to walk by faith and not by sight so that you can see the spiritual realities of what God is doing. Second, 
<coughs> Paul, uh, he lives knowing the fear of the Lord rather than the fear of man. Uh, this, is a, this is an idea that starts in verse 9 if you look at it, where he talks about his motive is ultimately to please God. And then he talks about how he, along with everyone else, is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then he concludes this in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, the fear of the Lord, uh, it's a phrase that's used all over the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And uh, the idea conveyed there is not like, oh, I'm going to be scared of God, although maybe a little bit of that is in there. But ultimately, it's about having this kind of disposition or attitude in life where you have such a reverence for the majesty of God that you tremble. uh, And not necessarily, uh, I'm scared of God, although that might be there, but you, you tremble before God because he is so holy and so glorious and therefore everything in your life is reordered in order to please him because you revere God so much. That is this idea of the fear of the Lord. Uh, but, you know, in order to understand the dynamics of how the fear of the Lord can work, uh, it might be helpful to look at the opposite of how the dynamics of the fear of man can work in our lives. Now, the fear of man doesn't necessarily mean that you're scared of people that they terrify you in, in kind of like a scary movie kind of way. But it means this, that you are driven by other people's thoughts about you, other people's opinions about you, other people's judgments about you, and therefore there is something within your heart that says their judgment is more important, and therefore I want to make sure that I can render a positive judgment in their view, and you kind of do certain things that are driven by that fear Now, there's different phrases that describe that, whether we call it peer pressure, whether we call it people pleaser, but it it is basically giving other people this power to drive your actions and your decisions, and oftentimes these actions and decisions uh, are, are sinful ones, both big and small. You know, think about this. You might never tell somebody the full truth, a heartful truth, the truth that they need to know, a truth that is loving, because maybe you're afraid of how they're gonna react to you. You might overcommit yourself to all of these different things uh, because you're just afraid of saying no to people. You might go with the flow of a corrupt system because you don't want people to think that you're uh, a tattletale or a whistleblower, which I think we've seen in our culture. You might give in to uh, sexual immorality or sexual temptation because you don't want the other person, the person that you're dating or whatnot, uh, to reject you. You know, we have all these things, I think, within us that are driven by this uh, fear of man, right? We want to please other people, and uh, it's so powerful that we kind of reorient our hearts and our lives, our decisions, our thoughts, our actions around this fear. When When we think about the fear of the Lord, I think it means this. You're not driven by the thoughts and opinions and judgments of people, but ultimately you're driven by the thoughts, opinions, and judgments of God. And your highest and ultimate aim is not to please people, but it is to please God. You don't want to disappoint him. And I think it's something that if you are a believer, all believers need to have. We need to have this fear of the Lord. And uh, by the way, that doesn't necessarily negate the love of God. They actually, I think, go together somehow. But this is something that we need if, uh, you know, we're going to live life in the right way, to put it bluntly. Now, I'm not sure there's a perfect analogy out there, but I wonder maybe if it's a little bit like the parent-child dynamic. Uh, You know, in Asian cultures in particular, uh, I think it's especially important to try to please your parents. And, uh, you know, some of you maybe still feel like that. You want to please your parents. You want to make them proud. You want to do good things for them. You care about what they think. Um, 
But that doesn't necessarily negate the fact that they love you and you love them, right? We need, in a, I think, in a similar fashion to allow the fear of the Lord to drive us toward a life of obedience and integrity. And frankly, I don't know how a believer lives with integrity without the fear of the Lord. Because then what you do in your private moments where nobody can see you, unless you have the fear of the Lord, I don't know what motivation you have to do uh, that which is right. We all need a sense that one day we are going to go, just like Paul has right here, we we are going to go before the judgment seat of God and we will be judged for our actions in the body. Because without it, I think what happens is we become untethered and we start to do just whatever we want, whatever we feel like is right, whatever the flow of the world or the cultural values are. Fear of the Lord. If we want to be selfless, if we want to live to please the Lord, it's something that we need. Finally, and last point <clears throat> before my voice gives out. Uh, Paul, he lives for the one who died for him rather than living for himself. And I, th- I think this is the upshot. I think this is actually the main point of this, this section. Because you see, the driving force of what really motivates Paul, as I said before, is love. And, you know, I mentioned this last week, but uh, let me just try to reinforce this point with a story. You know, I read this story of um, there was a girl, and she won this competition. I don't know what kind of competition it was, but apparently there was this wonderful prize, and the prize was this luxurious vacation. And, you know, this girl didn't come from a wealthy background. Uh, She had never experienced that kind of vacation before. So this was a pretty big deal, right, to win that prize of a luxurious vacation. But ultimately what she decided to do is she she turned it down. And she said, "Uh, I can't go on this vacation. And, you know, a reporter was interviewing her and was basically like, "Why, why did you turn down the prize? And she said, well, I have a friend, and this friend is about to get a serious operation, and I feel like I need to be there for her. And the reporter's a little bit like, what, what, right? Wouldn't your friend understand? You won this wonderful trip, this wonderful vacation. Wouldn't your friend understand if you weren't there to be with her for her surgery? And uh, he kept pressing. uh, But then finally she said, all right, you want to know why I'm turning down this prize to be with my friend in surgery? And then she gave the backstory of their relationship. And she said this, you know, three years ago, I hit rock bottom and I was steeped in drugs. I was so addicted to drugs. My family threw me out, and I had nowhere to go. This friend, she took care of me. She took me in. She talked to me every night. Uh, Every time I would vomit, she cleaned it up for me. She would change my clothes whenever I passed out. She took me to the doctors. She was there with me in court when I had my legal troubles. And eventually, uh, she helped me get sober and clean and helped me find a job. And she told this reporter, she loved me. There is no way that I can not be there for her after she has shown me such love to such a degree. I think that's what Paul is kind of getting at here when he talks about how the love of Christ controlled him. The love of Christ compelled him. He's saying this, I have experienced a love to such a degree, there, there is no way I cannot live for him anymore. I have to live for Christ. He is the one who died for me. And in that way, the love of Christ controls him. You see, I I think that is a a real and a true implication of the gospel. When you have this encounter with the living God, when you experience the fullness of his love for you, that he would send his one and only son to die upon a cross so that you might be forgiven and cleared of your cosmic debts caused by your sin, 
that he has saved your life, that he has given you a hope, that he has promised you resurrection, that he has made you clean. The implication is the same one that this woman had for her friend. How can I not live for one who did that for me? You see, when we start to feel that, when we start to feel that, then I think we're on the right track in terms of understanding the love of Christ in the right way. You know, let me end this message just with a simple question to ponder, but let me ask you this. What metric do you use? What metric do we use to judge whether we're being faithful? What is that metric? Is it based on outward appearances? Is it based on whether uh, the community thinks you are a nice person? Is it based on maybe how much you feel like you're doing for the Lord and how much you're serving? Is it based on your fruitfulness and how much, quote-unquote, success you're having in whatever you're doing? Now, these aren't, of course, bad things to consider, but I don't know if they would be at the top of the list for somebody like Paul. Because perhaps the better metrics to use are the ones that we see here. Do we have the fear of the Lord in our hearts? And is that driving us to live for him, to please him? Are we being obedient? Not for the sake of what people see, but for the sake of the Lord. Even when nobody is around, are we trying to be obedient? Even when nobody sees, are we trying to please the Lord? Are we captured by his love in such a way? Are we being drawn to his love in such a way that we kind of come to the conclusion, how can I live for myself? How is it all about me? How is it all about my fulfillment? I can't live like that anymore, but I must live for him. Are we living by faith and not by sight? Are we judging things based on what we see in external appearances? Are we judging things based on what the Spirit of God is doing? and whether we're submitting to that spirit and seeking to follow his will and his ways. As I said, other metrics are not bad and probably helpful to use, but at least from this passage, maybe those are some of the metrics that we ought to be using and asking ourselves in terms of reflecting upon our own lives and how we are living and the decisions that we are making, the actions that we are doing. Because you see the work of ministry the work of building bridges, it's ultimately a spiritual work, friends, powered by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, I think the real work of ministry is actually unseen. God's pattern is what? To typically work through weakness. And in a culture of self-promotion where self-promotion is normalized, we can't be afraid to what? Promote our weakness. <laughs> because I think that's what Paul does. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, later on, what does he do? He basically promotes his weakness. He says it like this, Let us boast all the more gladly in our weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. He boasts in his weakness. Maybe the most countercultural thing to do for us is to do just that. Who are we? We're not much. What have we accomplished? Not much. What are we able to accomplish on our own? Not much. We are broken people. We struggle with a variety of sins. We struggle with our own egos, our own pride, our own lusts of the flesh. 
And yet, we have a gracious God who works powerfully through his spirit that we don't see with our physical eyes, but we see with the eyes of faith. And he does his work. Friends, we want to build bridges, <clears throat> but don't forget that the work of ministry is a work that is not seen with physical eyes. Uh, and therefore, let me just reinforce spiritual disciplines like prayer. <laughs> and let's do that right now. Let's pray together.